Father, it is indeed good to be in the house of the Lord. We're back again today. We need the same things that we needed last Sunday. We need to experience your presence among us. And we pray, Father, that that indeed would be the case this morning. Father, we are a privileged people. We are privileged to worship the one true God who is creator of all, the God who is sustainer of all, the God who has invaded human history and prattled among its people, communicated to us the glorious grace of Christ. You've spoken to us on a level in which we could understand, and we are grateful for that. Father, again, we as a people um, are dependent upon your guiding hand to lead us through troubled days as a people, as a nation. We pray for guidance. We pray for protection. We pray, Father, that all things that we do as a nation would be, um, would honor and glorify your name. Again, we lift up our president to you. Again, we lift up our troops to you that are serving abroad, and we ask that you protect them. Father, in these critical hours, we pray that as Christians, we will be drawn to the very reason for our existence. We would be reminded that we are the hope of the world. We possess the gospel. We pray that as a church, we would be faithful to communicate that gospel to our neighbors and communicate that gospel to our co-workers. And then, Father, around the world, as we seek to send out missionaries and support families who are ministers of the gospel of peace in foreign countries, we pray, even this hour, you would bless those who represent you around the world. We pray for our pastor this morning and his wife as they continue their ministry there in Budapest. We thank you for the good week you gave them. We pray for another peaceful, prosperous week there. Father, finally this morning... We are fortunate. We are a prospered people because of your graciousness to us. And we pray that you would use these offerings we're about to give today to further your kingdom. And then, Father, after the preaching of the word is completed this hour, may we leave this place having experienced your presence among us, encouraged as your people. And we truly would bring honor and glory to your name in all things. For we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3. We were in Ephesians a couple of Sundays ago. I want to return to this great epistle this morning and uh, preach out of the third chapter of Ephesians. And then we'll gather around the sacrament this morning. This is a, a great text to preclude our communion this morning. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll read the first 13 verses together. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then... You will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the the promise of Christ Jesus. 
I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through him, or faith in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. Well, this is the word of God, and we pray that the Lord would bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Well, guys, if you've noticed a little awkwardness in our text this morning, it's because it is a bit awkward. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, we have the beginning of the second prayer that Paul voices for the Ephesians. He begins in verse 1 with these words, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Then he leaves his prayer, and he doesn't pick up the prayer until verse 14. So we have it, it should really read like this, the prayer, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That's the prayer. What Paul has done in between has offered us this great parentheses, sort of, where he returns to this This magnificent subject of grace, of God's reconciling work that he has wrought among his people through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we're not sure why Paul does it this way, why he starts the prayer and just leaves it for a few minutes. But there's some supposition. One is that maybe Paul thinks that some of his readers haven't fully yet grasped the magnitude and the implications of God's grace. That's even true among us today, isn't it? Even those of us who call ourselves evangelical Christians, we speak of grace, of grace and salvation, but we often are prone to abandon grace in our everyday life and return to the law. We're just by nature prone to do that. And so we often have to refocus upon this magnificent story of grace, that there's grace sufficient to save us and there's grace sufficient to keep us Uh, Today, and there's grace sufficient for tomorrow, and we live for future grace. And so, Paul, maybe, maybe he returns to this subject to re emphasize to these new Christians the importance of recognizing God's grace and living under grace. But I suspect there's something else going on. I suspect that Paul is still so taken by God's great grace in his own life. That he can't resist another opportunity to speak of its wonderful implications. And ladies and gentlemen, I suggest to you that that's the compulsion of a grateful heart. There's a hint of this, that is of of, uh, Paul's compulsion. There's a hint of this in verses 7 and 8. If you'll jump over there just quickly, let me remind you of this, show you this once again. Verse 7, Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel By the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And then he says, although I am less than the least of all God's people. Guys, what Paul has done here is is tried to reach into the Greek language and pick a word that would 
could best express his feelings. And, and he can't think of one, so he makes up his own word. The word here is leaster. Paul is really saying, I am leaster of all God's people. And it doesn't even fit in the English, but this is Paul's uh, grasping for a word to describe what he means. It's me, Paul. You remember me, the one who was the great enemy of the church, the persecutor of the Christians? Of all people, God would choose me. I am the least. I'm the leaster of all God's people. Now, guys, this humility of Paul's is a genuine humility. Paul was constantly aware of his own sin. You remember uh, Paul's struggle in some of his other epistles where Paul says there is this ongoing war within me of my old nature and new nature. And as if Paul constantly was battling against his old sinful nature and he was longing for the day when he could completely put down his sinful nature. It was a genuine humility. When I read this About Paul's conversion in Acts 9, I'm always reminded of one of my favorite stories in church history. It's Martin Luther's own account of his his own conversion. Remember Martin Luther, the great reformer? It was when Luther was a young monk, a a young priest in the Catholic Church, a young monk. He was reading through the, the psalmist David, and he kept coming across the phrase in the psalmist, which appears several times in the book of Psalms, The phrase, the righteousness of God. And every time Luther would come across this phrase, the righteousness of God, he thought of God's punitive righteousness, whereby God has the right to judge sinners. And when uh, uh, Luther would come across this phrase, he said it it would bring up red in his mind because Luther knew of all people that he was a sinner. He seemed to struggle day in and day out, even as a priest, of trying to find peace with God. Luther would go to enormous extremes. He would go for days without eating. On one occasion, he made a pilgrimage to the city of Rome, the seat of the Catholic Church. And he climbed a a great staircase on his hands and knees, doing anything to find peace with God. His superiors grew impatient with him and on one occasion said, Luther, you've done enough. Now go on about your business. And yet Luther still couldn't find that peace. He once described his life as nothing more than than living and dying and being damned if he could only find peace. Later, in later years, he was given the assignment to teach through the book of Romans to a group of seminary students. And it was while Luther was preparing for this class... He was studying the book of Romans and he came across this phrase in Romans 1.16 where it says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation. Luther thought, well, that's good news. Then he kept reading, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. And that was bad news again. For there was that phrase, the righteousness of God. And Luther said that his, his fear returned. Then he kept reading, the news only got worse. The righteousness of God in verse 18 says that the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness of men. And Luther fell into despair once again. And he thought, how could Paul do this? What could, could, could possibly could Paul mean by this words? This great man who was liberated himself by grace. What could Paul possibly mean here? Luther thought, surely I've misunderstood the great apostle. 
And he returned again to this verse and read it once again. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Luther said it was then that a great light dawned that came on in his mind and in his heart. He he realized for the first time that this righteousness of God that Paul was speaking of was not the punitive righteousness of God whereby he judges sinners. But the righteousness of God that Paul was speaking of was this righteousness that was freely given to sinners in Jesus Christ to those who came to him in believing faith. Ladies and gentlemen, at that moment... The flames of the Reformation were ignited. Luther said that bells began to toll in, toll in his soul. He said later that Romans 1.17 was the key that unlocked the entire Bible for him. Well, I tell you, it was just like that for the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine, ladies and gentlemen, what Paul experienced on that road to Damascus when his eyes were opened? I want you to turn quickly this morning to uh, Acts chapter 9. I want to read a part of the sequence or the events that happened after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Now, remember, remember Saul. This was the man who by his own testimony was a great enemy of the church. And Paul, by his own testimony, was a pure-blooded Jew, a Jew of all Jews, Paul was, as Saul, a young man trained in the very elite universities of Judaism. He was a member of the ruling body of the Jews, a a stalwart of the Old Testament faith. It was this man that we're speaking of here that Luke records in Acts uh, chapter 9, verse 17. After his conversion, he goes to this house in Damascus, and then Ananias is led there by the Spirit, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Then look in verse 20. At once... He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Why, ladies and gentlemen, why this dramatic change with the Apostle Paul? Because for the first time in his life, the Old Testament Scriptures had been opened as he experienced the glorious grace of God through Jesus Christ. Paul never completely understood the Old Testament until his conversion. It was like Paul put on corrective lenses. And he understood for the first time Genesis 12 and God's great covenant he made with Abraham. And he alludes to this in Galatians chapter 3 where he says, I know now that all nations would be blessed and that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And so we see here, guys, a a hint of this great mystery that Paul is speaking of in Ephesians chapter 3. You see, Paul is not speaking of a new way of salvation For Paul even testifies in Romans 4 that he understood that even Abraham was justified by faith. So this is not a new way of salvation that Paul is speaking of in in Ephesians 3. What this is, is this new mystery that he alludes to in in, uh, uh, verse 6 is that God is creating a new race, 
a new people, a new nation, which we know now as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Now, what he does is he as he uh, describes this mystery to us. By the way, when this word that Paul uses, mystery, is unique to Paul. No one else uses it in the New Testament. And the, the use of mystery was understood in the, uh, the first century as not, not something unknown like the way we define mystery today, like uh, who killed Chandra Levy or, or who kid, kidnapped Lacey Peterson. These are mysteries that we don't know. But in the first century, they didn't define mystery as something unknown. To them, mystery meant something known only to the initiated. So what Paul understood was that only those who had been reconciled to God through Christ, who have become a part of this new race, this new mystery, only those people would understand truly what he spoke of. And in verse 6, he goes on to give us three parallel terms that describe the dynamic effects of this mystery. You see it in verse 6? He says, heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise. Any of you see the, uh, the movie Sabrina? There's a 1995 version of That's the one I'm referring to. I didn't discover until this week that there was an older version of the movie Sabrina. I think it uh, was starred um, Audrey Hepburn in the old version. I don't think I ever saw that version. But I did see the 1995 make of Sabrina. Remember that movie? Uh, Harrison Ford starred in it and Julia Orman, and she plays uh, the uh, butler, the chauffeur's daughter in this movie. You know why, why that movie is so... By the way, it's a great movie. If you'd like to rent it for the family, the whole family can watch Sabrina. You know why we like Sabrina, movies like Sabrina? Because it speaks to something deep within us, this desire to belong. And I like Sabrina because... In this movie, the chauffeur's daughter becomes heir to it all. She moves from the studio over the garage to the mansion itself. No longer will Sabrina have to look, be on the outside looking in at all the extravagant celebrations and parties that are thrown. She now belongs. So it is with us, ladies and gentlemen. When we are saved by grace, we are born into a new family. Literally, Paul teaches us that we have become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are heirs together of the covenant promise. Heirs together of Genesis chapter 12. All the blessings and all the riches are possessed by all of us jointly. And Paul says also we're members together of one body. And Paul is alluding here to that, that double union that took place at regeneration. And he's also, I think, alluding to this illustration that he gave in chapter 2, where he talks about this dividing wall of hostility in the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. And the Gentile knew, the unbelieving Gentile, or even the God-fearing Gentile, understood that He was at risk of his own life if he crossed over into the court of the Gentiles. And Paul says in chapter 2 that that wall of hostility was torn down by Jesus Christ. And Jew and Gentile are joined together. They're members together of one body. But there was a separation symbolized in the temple that was far more serious than that separation. 
It was the separation in the Holy of Holies and that great curtain that separated the inner sanctuary from the outer sanctuary. That only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. And he could only cross that barrier once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would do it at risk of his own life. And the high priest would take that offering and offer it up to God for a sacrifice. And if God received the sacrifice, the people could have fellowship and communion with God through the high priest. And Paul tells us that when Christ was crucified, on the, at his, the very moment of his death, that great curtain was ripped from top to bottom, tearing down that separation. And all of us now have access to the Father in a few minutes. We'll come around this sacrament, and this sacrament itself will symbolize that we are all priests, and we have fellowship and communion with the Holy God. We are members together of one body, and then he says, shares together in the promise. Shares together. I think this is really a summary of these first two. Paul is talking about this, that we share equally in redemption. There is no inner and no outer circle. We're all one. By the way, I want to mention this in passing, that this, this union that Paul is describing here in verse 6 with these three dynamic implications, this union is not merely a concept for us, guys. It is to be practiced. And we saw the early church in action in Acts chapter 2. And we see the church of Jerusalem, the church at Antioch, as they lived out this dynamic unity the scriptures tell us that the unbelieving world communities were stunned by their unity. And so for us, it means that the lost today in our world and in our community are drawn to Christ as they see us, as they witness among us this dynamic unity practiced. And then look in verse 8. We have here one of, the, one of my most, I think one of my favorite phrases in all the New Testament. Paul says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, I want to save that and come back to verse 8 uh, in just a few minutes as we close. Look with me quickly in verse 9 and 10. I want to re- reread these verses to you because they made a big impression on me as I was studying this text. In fact, uh, I, for a while I was thinking about not even discussing verses 9 and 10 and just spending my time on some of these other verses. But it seemed that I kept being drawn back to 9 and 10. I was fascinated with these verses. Listen to these words again. And Paul says, And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent, verse 10, was that now through the church, and this is the verse, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Think of this, ladies and gentlemen. Think of this passage. Who do you think Paul is referring to when he says that uh, he makes this statement, rulers and authorities in heavenly realms? He's speaking of angels. Now, it's key. As we understand, unlock this text. We understand that Paul is referring to angels, spiritual beings. Now, what does he mean by the manifold wisdom of God? He's speaking of this uh, multifaceted, this multicolored wisdom of God that's being displayed. Now, here's the picture. Let Let me illustrate this for you and give you a visual aid to help you understand what I think Paul is speaking here in these verses. For the sake of illustration, let's suppose that everyone in this room represents 
the great mystery that Paul is speaking of. The church. The new nation. We all represent the new nation. And we represent the saints of ages past. And the saint, saint, all the saints of the church today, alive today. We represent the new nation. And we are here in this grand room. This grand universe. And this room represents, for the illustration, a great stage. And we are all actors upon the stage. And there is an audience that's watching this great drama unfold in human history as we are the players, the actors in this drama. It is God. The Spirit of God is watching this drama unfold. And remember, it's important to remember that God is always consumed with his own glory. And God is watching the actors on this stage. We the actors as we act out this dramatic history. Now pretend there's a balcony all around the sanctuary. And there are thousands and thousands of angels crammed into the balcony. And they're literally hanging over the rails. Looking down at this great drama unfold. And they're looking down at us, the church, as we, as we act out this dramatic history. And they look at us. And then they look up at God and they see his response. And they look down at God and they look, uh, look down at us and they look back at God. Now remember... The angels were created long before we were created. The angels were present at creation and they witnessed God's creative power. They were there at Sinai and they were stunned by God's wrath at Sinai. And they were stunned by God's gracious love at Calvary. But ladies and gentlemen, nothing enhances the praise of angels more than seeing God's manifold wisdom unfold in the church today. And their praise is enhanced as they lift their voices to God in adoration and praise as One great choir and they look down again and they see us live out this drama and they watch God's response as he's blessed by the church and the angels give praise again to God. And we know from scripture, the text tells us that when one lost sheep is brought into the fold, that the angels rejoice again because they're seeing the manifold wisdom of God displayed, the multicolored wisdom of God, and they see it displayed in the church. Now, there's a great implication, application for this today, guys. We live today... And very dangerous, interesting times. Someone was asking me this week, we're having dinner with some friends. And someone asked me, what's your favorite television program? And Carl was sitting to my right and she didn't let me answer. She jumped in and said, his favorite program is the news. All he watches is the news. And I I confess, I'm a news junkie. But I try to catch the news at night because there's so many interesting things going on in the world today. The rise and fall of great nations. uh, The great democracies like the United States. And we see impending war with Iraq and the investigation of the shuttle Accident. And we see a still remnants of war going on in Afghanistan. And then we have Korea, Korea acting up and the, the fear of a nuclear uh, rise in nuclear weapons. And all of these things are going on in history today. But I tell you, the central focus of human history is not great nations. It's not even the United States. It's not even the Middle East. The central focus of history is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are part of that great manifold wisdom of God unfolding today. Then I want you to go back and look with me in verse 8. I want to close with uh, this text where Paul says that this great or this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, guys, this is a great verse to finish on this morning as we prepare to take communion. Think about this for the unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, on Thursday, one of the secretaries, Marie, one of our uh, secretaries here, buzzed in and said, Richard, I've been proofing the bulletin. And 
I was running the bulletin through spell check and the sermon today was entitled Unsearchable Riches. And she said, the word unsearchable doesn't, it's not in the dictionary. Would you like to choose another word? And I said, no, it's not in the dictionary. You won't find the, the word unsearchable in Webster's dictionary, but it's a biblical word. You know what it means? It means literally riches that cannot be tracked. I want to tell you a story as I close this morning that really illustrates beautifully what I think Paul is speaking of here, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We were privileged a couple of weeks ago to have in our city, Robbie Zacharias, whom I think is probably the finest Christian apologist alive today. And on Saturday morning's talk, at the close of his talk, Ravi Zacharias told this story. And I know some of you were there because I saw you. And so I apologize uh, for telling the story again. But I, I want to tell it because it's a perfect story that illustrates uh, this issue of the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's really a parable. I think uh, this story floated around on the Internet for some time. But I had heard Ravi Zacharias tell the story before and. And I want to tell it again this morning. It's a parable of a very wealthy man who spent much of his wealth collecting great pieces of art. This man only had one son. And soon after his son was born, he lost his wife. And so the son was the only heir to all of this wealth. The son grew up to become a very well-loved man, very likable, personal young man. And. Several times a week, the son would go into the city, and on one occasion, he befriended a beggar there in the city. So every time the son would go into the city, he would spend at least a few minutes with this beggar friend. Years later, the son was killed in a tragic accident, left the father with no one to give all of his wealth to. And the father was grieving, as you can imagine, over the loss of his son. The beggar got word that the son had been killed. And he knew that the father was a collector of great art. So the beggar painted a portrait of the son. It wasn't very well done. But nonetheless, he took the painting to the father and gave it to him as a gift. The father graciously received the painting and the beggar left. And the beggar didn't know it. But that night, the father took the painting, the crude, simple painting of his son. And he hung it in the great hall where all of the great paintings were displayed. Well, years later, the father died and a notice was posted in the papers that an auction was to take place to auction off all of these great paintings. The beggar saw the notice and he thought out of curiosity he would go to the house and and just be a part of the auction just to see what would happen. And he came in that day and slipped in the back door and stood against the wall. There were hundreds of people from all over the world who were there to capture one of those prizes. And the auctioneer came to the podium to begin the auction. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement to make before I begin the auction. It was the desire of the father that I sell this portrait of his son. Do I hear a bid for the painting? An uncomfortable silence fell across the crowd. No one was interested in that painting. They were really ready for the main auction to begin. And so finally in the back, the young beggar spoke up and he said, I don't have much, but you can have what I have. The auctioneer said, sold, sold to the man in the back. He gave the painting to the beggar. A buzz began to fill the room as the the, the guest realized that the main auction was about to begin. The auctioneer came to the podium and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I have one other announcement to make. You see, it was the desire of the father that whoever bid on the picture of the son 
gets the whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen, in that simple little parable is locked up an enormous truth. Whoever gets Jesus gets the whole treasure. The unsearchable riches of Christ. We have much to be thankful for this morning.